Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 12 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Persecution Escalates, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Yeah, we're going to see the very thing that uh, was in the title. We're going to see the persecution ramping up. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were just threatened and let go. They spent a night in jail. Uh, but the uh, Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, didn't really know what to do with them. But at this point, they're, they're ready. They're organized, and they're ready to kill them. Uh, Gamaliel speaks up and effectively saves their lives, although the outcome is very inconsistent. Uh, you know, he persuades them not to kill them, but they do flog them. Hmm. And so uh, he warns them that they might be fighting against God. These men actually might be from God. All right, then let's just flog them and not kill them. Um, and so we're going to see that. But again, uh, this is the issue of persecution. And then the next case uh, in Acts 6 and 7, they will kill Stephen. So it's just going to keep ramping up. Hmm. A, a savage persecution then will be unleashed by Saul in Acts 8, and it's going to ramp up. And so what we've seen is that the journey from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth has been a bloody one. It's not only bloody, but it has included the blood of martyrs. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, 
a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Andy, what does verse 12 teach us about the miracles in the early church? And why was there such a focus on the apostles here? Well, it says that the apostles performed many signs and wonders. We see this also in Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about those that were eyewitnesses uh, that did great signs and wonders. And so, uh, again, this was something that the apostles were groomed to do in the days of Jesus' public ministry. He gave them authority to drive out demons. He gave them power to to heal. Uh, People uh, were healed even in the time when they were just beginning uh, their own version of a public ministry. And so this kind of power continued after Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And so they're doing signs and wonders. Although I will say, and it's important to say, no one ever did the kinds of miracles or the the volume of miracles that Jesus did, Mm. not even close. Uh, Jesus was healing huge populations and he was healing everybody. Uh, These were more, um, you know, uh, limited in number. At any rate, they were doing uh, tremendous uh, miracles. And as a result, uh, more and more people were listening to their message. What were some reasons for what we read in verse 13, and what's the relationship between verses 13 and 14? All right, well, in verse 13, it says, No one else dared to join them, though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more women, uh, men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So what it is is I think because of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and the word got out mm. of what had happened. Here are two individuals who lied and dropped dead. No one touched them. Mm. They just were struck dead by God. There was a sense of awe and wonder and a sense of the holiness of the church. This uh, also, apart from any supernatural death, but is the evidence of a holy church when the church, according to 1 Corinthians 5, does does church discipline. The reputation of the church as a holy place Mm -hmm. rises in the community, and it causes a sense of seriousness, that that's a serious church. Well, how much more when there's a supernatural death like Ananias and Sapphira. So people are afraid to join them. You know, if you join that group, you better have your yourself in order because if you lie, you might fall fall down dead. And so there's a sense of seriousness and the reputation of the church. So what I would say is the connection between these two verses is that there were no casual people trying mm-hmm. it out, but rather people who had come to genuine faith in Christ and knew they didn't want to be anywhere else except where the Lord was working. And so uh, verse 13, no casual people join them. They are highly regarded by the people, but more and more women are gen- men and women are genuinely believing the Lord and are coming, to, coming into the church. So those who joined their number were those who had truly counted the cost of yeah. what it would mean to follow Jesus. Absolutely. And by the way, I think this reminds me of something. When, when God warned Moses— 
make certain that you you put that barrier around Mount Sinai mm. so that the people don't force their way in and come up the mountain and I'll have to kill them. And it's amazing. You think it's counterintuitive. Here's God in his holiness, God in his power, God in his terror coming down, and the ground is shaking. And God says, you better put a fence or something around there because if they come up the mountain, I'm going to kill them, or they're going to have to be killed. Hmm. You'd think they'd be running the other way, but God knows better. He knows hmm. we want to be near God. And so the idea here is if a holy, majestic, powerful God is preached, people will want to come. What do verses 15 and 16 teach us about the extent and nature of the apostolic healing ministry? And how does it give us insight into modern faith healing movements? Okay, so um, it shows that at that early stage, there were significant healings. And so even despite what I just said, that there was there's never been a healer like Jesus, still it says here, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, and all of them were healed. And so there were large numbers of people being healed in those days. Now, by the end of the apostolic era, that had diminished. For example, uh, Paul says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Mm. Uh, so, you know, he's not healing everybody. Uh, there, was no, there were no sick people around Jesus. Um, so at any rate, there's a widespread healing ministry going on here. And it was quite remarkable. Peter's shadow might fall on some people. Um, or, or just handkerchiefs sometimes were brought from Paul and people were healed. So uh, it's a remarkable healing ministry. But again, I think this is like a, a, like a, a starter flame or something like that for the fire of the gospel. Mm. It's, it's something that gives, gives credibility to the apostles and gets people to listen to their message. So what does that then teach us about modern faith healing movements that we hear of or that are popular in some circles? Well, I think it's important to test everything. Like it says, test the spirits, don't believe every spirit. And so I'm skeptical, very skeptical, about any accounts of a faith healer that goes from place to place and heals people. I've actually never read accounts of any that I thought were believable or that compared with Jesus, certainly, hmm. or even with the apostles. So I think we just want to test things and make certain that they are what uh, we're reading about here in Scripture. At any rate, we see the reason for the healing. Certainly, it's a display of compassion that the apostles had and a lo love for people, but also it gathered a crowd. Huge crowds came, and they were ready to hear the word. In verses 17 through 26, we see this arrest, imprisonment, and then a miraculous escape. What motives does Luke give for the persecution against the church? And how does jealousy factor into the arrest of Jesus, the persecution in Acts, and even Paul's strategy that we'll see later on? Yeah, so uh, the Jews are filled with jealousy uh, because they see the signs and wonders. They see that God's favor is with them mm. and not with them. So it reminds me back, and in, in 1 John talks about this, about the bitterness between Cain and Abel. Not that Abel had any bitterness, but Cain was jealous of his brother because his own brother's actions were righteous and his were wicked. And so their their conscience is guilty. They're they're in it for the money. I mean, these are corrupt people, especially Annas and Caiaphas. They were like the heads of a religious mafia, and they were evil. And then their henchmen also. I think there was a corruption. But meanwhile, there's this this group of untrained, unlettered people, common people from Galilee of all places, and God is with them, and they're doing signs and wonders they can't even 
they can't even imagine. They, they, they would love to deny the miracles, but they can't. Everybody's seen them. And so they are filled with jealousy, and that's why they arrested the apostles. Now, you, the, the second question you asked is, what role does jealousy play in, let's say, Paul's ministry later? He actually actively sought to arouse jealousy hmm. among the Jews by effectively saying, you're on the outside. Hmm. Uh, in the olive tree analogy, you are branches, fruitless branches that have been stripped off. You're in trouble. You need to be grafted in. And so I want to make you jealous. I want you to see the wonderful things that are going on among the Gentile converts to mm. this Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Their lives are being transformed. Their marriages are being transformed. Um, they're, they're filled with joy and confidence and their prayers are being answered. And people are being healed and amazing things are happening among the Gentiles. But this religion started among the Jews. Jesus came uh, to seek and save the lost sheep of Israel. It started with a Jewish Messiah. He is our own, our own contribution to the world. And so you should come when you see all the work that God is doing by the Spirit among these Gentile converts. I want you to be filled with jealousy and know you're on the outside looking in. Mm. And I'll say another thing about this. This is one thing that we do with the Lord's Supper in, in our corporate worship. We want people to know that if they're not Christians, they are not to partake, mm. that they are to refrain that this is only for believers. This is a, a feast of joy and celebration and remembrance and anticipation of heaven that's for Christians. Now, we want you to participate next time. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have it you know, quarterly, so in three months it would be wonderful if you would come to faith in Christ and then be baptized and then you can join us. We actually want them to feel jealous. They're mm -hmm. on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful feast going on and they're on the outside, but they could come inside if they just repent and believe. We mentioned in this passage that there's this miraculous escape that's affected by the power of God. Why does God sometimes affect miraculous escapes for his servants, but sometimes lets them languish in prison for years? Yeah, we're going to see that definitely later with James and with Peter, where James is executed. Uh, the, brother, uh, the brother of John is executed. Uh, but Peter is delivered. He mm. escapes. And so God's ways are not our own. Mm -hmm. One of them he gives up to martyrdom. The other one he uh, will give up to martyrdom later. Um, but at that point, he wants him to continue to minister. God's ways are not our ways. And he is able sovereignly to control these things. So we see our brothers and sisters being incarcerated in places like China or North Korea uh, or Islamic countries or other places where the gospel is illegal. And uh, and some of them are in prison for a long time, according to the will of God. But they know the book of Acts. They know that God can cause a deep sleep to fall on their captors and the prison doors fly open and an angel commanding them to get up and walk out. And it's not a vision. It's real. They know that God could still do that. If he chooses not to, he has his own purposes. Mm. We also know that it was God's purpose to put Paul in front of Caesar and in front of many tribunals so that he would give a testimony to Christ. And it's the very thing Jesus said, said would happen on my account. You'll be arrested and brought before before tribunals and and kings and and governors. And don't worry ahead of time what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you at that time what to say. So in this case, uh, we've got two phases. First, they're arrested, and then they they're set free without anything else. They just walk out hmm. and they go back there into downtown Jerusalem and keep preaching. Then they're arrested again, and that time they're beaten. So God has different purposes. He could deliver them at any point from any beatings. Uh, in this case, uh, there are these two phases. 
So God does have them released for a purpose, mm-hmm. and that purpose is that they would speak all the words or the mm-hmm. full message. What mm-hmm. is the significance mm-hmm. of that command that he gives to them upon their escape from prison? The full message of this new life. So that the whole gospel, don't hold anything back. Mm. You know, we, we've we organized, uh, noted that, that a four-part outline of the gospel is beneficial. God, man, Christ response. And in the God section, we talk about God as the creator, and the king and the lawgiver and judge. And then we line that up with the man section. We're created by God the creator. We're under the authority of God the king, but we have broken the laws of God the lawgiver and we're under the judgment of God the judge. And therefore we need God the savior and that is Christ. So if you're gonna tell the full message, you need to tell the truth about the law and the fact that people are lawbreakers. They're guilty, they're sinful. And that Jesus is the son of God, also uh, son of man, Uh, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death, his blood shed on the cross, his atoning uh, sacrifice for the sins of the world, and that all you have to do is repent and believe and your sins will be forgiven. That's the full message. Don't pull back from anything. Hmm. Don't hide anything, as they will say later. I've not shrunk back from proclaiming anything that would be helpful to you, the full message of this new life. So what were the apostles doing the next morning then, and what effect did the miraculous deliverance from prison have on the Jewish leaders and temple guards? So at daybreak, they entered the temple courts and began to preach. The angel told them to preach, and they did what they were supposed (laughs) to do, and it's the very thing they wanted to do. Mm. The thing they said that they were going to do, Peter and John said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're going to preach. Jesus told us to do this right before he ascended to heaven. Hmm. So we are going to do this. We're going to do it in any case. But the angel told them to keep on doing it. And so they went there and preached. And so what was the effect on their enemies? Total consternation. Um, they, they went to... Um, uh, they went to get these men and to bring them to trial, but the men were gone. Uh, the officers didn't find them there. <laughs> and so they go back and report this miracle. They found We found the, the jail securely locked and the doors uh, and gates bolted and barred. But when we looked inside, there was no one there. I mean, it's a miracle. <laughs> and so they had no explanation. And so in verse 24, it says that they were puzzled. They didn't know what any of they were. They were in total consternation. They had no explanation. Yeah, you can imagine walking up to a locked room that you were expecting to find something inside. You open the door and they're gone. They're not there. I mean, how? What, in the, yeah. what happened? <laughs> there is no explanation. <laughs> I like that. Puzzled. They're, they're confused. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. To say the least, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Uh, before we move on to the accusation that's leveled against them and Peter's response, I wonder if you could comment on how passive and fearful and reactionary these leaders have become, mm-hmm. as well as why the guards were afraid to use force on the apostles, as it says in verses 25 and 26. Well, it was already happening in Jesus's time. Uh, again and again, his enemies were wanted to kill them, but they're afraid of the crowd. Mm. Wanted to arrest them, but they're afraid of the crowd. Um, they're, they're obviously totally afraid of the crowd, as every government should be. Mm. I mean, in the end, the government only rules by the consent of the people. If enough people rise up, there's nothing the government can do. They don't want to slaughter all the people. And so fundamentally, um, there's, there is a vulnerability here. And it's even worse in that they're, they're crooked, wicked people. So their conscience is defiled and they're mm. fearful. And they actually, as Gamaliel is going to put his finger on the soft spot, you may 
find yourself fighting against God. And so they were in a reactionary state. They were not strong, clear leaders. And so they don't know what to do. They're being led rather than they are leaders here. And they're very afraid. That we've already seen that in chapter 3 where, where the guards had to be very careful in their arresting of Peter and John who had just done a miracle. Like, hey, if you wouldn't mind coming with us, there's just some questions that the leaders would like to ask, you know, something like that, hmm. some gentle approach. Because they're afraid that the crowd's going to stone them. And so here, again, as you yourself have said, Wes, they are very passive and weak compared to the power of the Holy Spirit. So as passive and weak as they are, they do manage to get Peter and these apostles mm -hmm. um, back in front of their council. Mm -hmm. What accusation do these Jewish leaders make toward Peter and the other apostles? Mm -hmm. And what is implied in the statement that the apostles intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Yeah, so they, they do go and they bring them in. They're afraid. They don't use force. They're afraid of being stoned. They bring in the apostles before the Sanhedrin and they're, they're on trial. This is a trial. Um, and this is what they say. The Sanhedrin says, the high priest says, we gave you, gave you strict orders hmm. not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Hmm. We told you not to. Um, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And uh, in my translation says, they're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood or bring his blood on our heads. Yeah. Now, what's so bizarre about this is in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, this is the very thing they willingly took on themselves. Mm -hmm. When Pilate was washing his hands of them, of Jesus, and say, look, it's it's on you. I, I want to set him free, but you're forcing me. They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Hmm. Now, this is a very important point that Peter makes earlier in Acts chapter 3, uh, in which uh, he said, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You, the Jewish population, handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. So it's not ultimately Pilate's fault. In one sense, it is. He's responsible. He should have resisted. But they were going to riot if they if Pilate let, let Jesus go, and mm -hmm. he didn't want a riot to start. And so he felt he had no choice. They were going to go over his head and tell, and tell Caesar. So they were guilty. Pilate would have released Jesus. He tried to let him go. He said he's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. He again and again tried to let him go. Now, he's still in charge, and he's responsible. But ultimately, it is their fault that Jesus was condemned. Now, it's important that we know some of the history of this. Um, in, in the centuries in the centuries that precede us, there's a, a long and ugly history of anti-Semitism based on the Jewish people being accused as Christ killers. And here's the thing. What we need to understand is we all killed Jesus. Mm -hmm. It was our sins that put him to death. God orchestrated the death of Jesus so that Jews first and then Gentiles were responsible. Pilate wouldn't have even dealt with Jesus if the Jews hadn't handed him over uh, to them. And that's why Jesus said uh, to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. That would mm. be Annas. And so they knew better. They should never have handed their brother Israelite over to the, to the Gentiles to be executed. But God orchestrated the circumstance, Jesus' trials, and it was multiple trials, so that both Jew and Gentile alike were responsible for his death. So that's the 
accusation that the council mm-hmm. levels against Peter and the other apostles, what explanation does Peter give for their disobedience mm-hmm. of a command not to preach in Christ's name? And mm-hmm. why does Peter rehearse the facts of the gospel again to the Jewish leaders? Okay, so the first question is it's just a restatement of what they had said in Acts chapter 4. Mm. Um, judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. He says the same thing here. We must obey God rather than men. In other words, we're not going to obey you when it directly contradicts what God has told us to do. And he has told us to fill Jerusalem with this gospel. Indeed, he's told us to fill the whole world with it. Hmm. So yes, we're going to keep preaching. There's nothing you can do to stop it. So we have to obey God rather than men. By the way, I just want to say this is vital for us as evangelists. We need to be we need to fear God more than we fear men. We need to yearn to please God more than we please men. Uh, this is one of the great hindrances to evangelism is when we put man above God and fear of man above fear of God. But mm. Peter didn't, and he's ready to go. And I'll, of course, remember Peter's story and, and how he denied even knowing Jesus. Well, he has been absolutely cured of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he rehearses, as you mentioned in the second part of your question, the facts of the gospel. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Hmm. So this is going to lead right into what Gamaliel is saying. You're fighting against God. You're working at cross purposes with God. God raised from the dead the one you had killed. Hmm. And it says he had him killed. So they, they were an orchestrator's death, but it was by Roman uh, soldiers that he was killed. So you had him killed by hanging him on a tree. All of these are the basic facts of the gospel. And then God raised him from the dead. The, the apostles always refer to the resurrection. They always mention it. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior so that he might give repentance and, and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That is a very succinct gospel presentation. Mm. Now this one who you have fought against, he's at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. That's who you're fighting against. And for all of that, despite your rebellion and all of your wickedness, the forgiveness of sins is offered to you. Through repentance and faith in Christ, your sins can be forgiven. And we're telling you, we're witnesses, and the Holy Spirit also. This is one of those great joint verses here where Jesus said in in John 15 or 16, I think he says, he said, you are witnesses of these things. You must testify and the Holy Spirit also, the counselor will testify. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a cooperation. You get this in the last book of the Bible, also Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride, the church say, come. And so there's this invitation going on here, this this evangelistic effort. We are witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit. How is he? Through the miracles. Yeah, it's amazing. Peter, on trial, once again, in front of this council, seems to have always before him this sense of their need and a desire to proclaim the gospel, even to those who he lays the blame for what has just taken place in Jesus' death at their feet. He still desires that they would hear, repent, and believe. Yeah, always a desire uh, for repentance. He'd love to see them change. Also, I love this word, obey. Mm. The Holy Spirit will be given if you'll just obey. Mm. The gospel is predominantly something to be obeyed, believed and obeyed. Mm. So we believe the gospel, we obey the gospel. It's a summons from God, the King. And if you'll obey him, he'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we want to look at Gamaliel's speech, which really is the balance of this Mm -hmm. chapter. Mm -hmm. But 33 almost seems like the spark that ignites Gamaliel's speech to the council. What brought such an extreme reaction Mm -hmm. from the leaders to Peter's speech in verse 33? 
Well, I think whenever there's carnal anger, there's some idolatry at the heart of it. And their idolatry is their own lives as powerful, wealthy men. It's self-worship. But specifically, they are idolizing their money and their powerful position over Israel. Mm -hmm. And they cannot stand this kind of bold defiance. It it enrages them. So this is the, the typical tyrannical response. A tyrant responds to this kind of independence and confident independence by rage Mm. and a desire to use the power at their disposal to put them to death. Keep in mind, they could not execute Jesus. They had to hand him over um, to Pilate to be killed. That was the rule. Mm. But they're ready to kill these guys right here and there, here and now. All right, so who is Gamaliel, and how would you summarize his speech and the advice he gives concerning the apostles in verses 33 through 39? Right, in one sense, he could be called the teacher of Israel. He's one of these great rabbinic leaders. And um, Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the apostle Paul, sat at Gamaliel's feet and was taught the scripture by him. Hmm. And that was something that could be boasted about Um, but not concerning Christ. Uh, And so here is this great teacher of Israel, and he uh, speaks up. He's a Pharisee. He's uh, uh, designated here as a Pharisee and a well-known teacher of the law, it says, who was honored by all the people. And because he's successful in his persuasion, they listen to him. Mm. He's got a kind of a practical, a kind of a pragmatic wisdom here that we need to weigh and try to understand. All right, so let's walk through what Gamaliel's uh, practical wisdom is. He's uh, First of all, he wanted the guys out, put out, so that he could address them uh, privately. And he says, you, you need to be very, very careful what you do with these men. Well, absolutely they do, uh, but not for the reason Gamaliel thinks. I mean, mm-hmm. to some degree, yes, but they he doesn't understand um, the zeal that Almighty God will have to defend his people. If we look at, at, at Revelation 16, when the angel is turning the water the drinking water of planet Earth into blood. He's celebrating it, saying, you are right in doing this mm. uh, because you they have shed the blood of your people and you're giving them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And so God takes very seriously people who will beat on his people or kill them. And so they do need to consider very, very carefully what they intend to do to this man. Then he goes over some recent history. Now, this gives us some insight into the religious life of the Jews back then. There are always these individuals popping up claiming to be somebody. That's what it says about Thutis. Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody. (laughs) In other words, as Jesus himself would say, false Christs and false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Hmm. And so this is always going on. It's a very religious people, and there would be people that would go out like John the Baptist did out in the desert, and they'd come back, and they'd gain a following. So this happened again and again. And Jesus said, watch out for it. Watch out that this happened. So this man, Thutis, did, and about 400 people rallied to him. But when he was killed, it all ended. Mm-hmm. And it went away like nothing. Just cut off the head of the snake, and the snake dies. That was the mentality. And then another guy, Judas the Galilean, appears in the days of the census. That was back when you know when Jesus was born, uh, the census uh, under Caesar Augustus. And the same thing happened again. I mean, he led a band of people in revolt, and they and he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So here's the thing: Jesus has now been killed. Hmm. It's probably going to go to the same way. I mean, he's yeah. just nothing is going to happen to this. So just step back. Leave them alone. Let them go, you know, because here's the thing. If their purpose or activity is from is from human order, origin, as we've seen with these other two, it's gonna it's gonna fail. It's mm. gonna be like the like the morning mist, like like dust in the wind. But if it is from God, you're you're going to you're going to find yourself fighting against this massive work of God. Now here's the problem I have with Gamaliel's speech. What about Islam? 
Muhammad died, died of old age. He wasn't executed, but did Islam die out when he died? No, it it's, gets stronger and stronger every hundred years. Hmm. So just because something's not from God doesn't mean it's not going to be very, very popular. So I think you got to take Gamaliel's practical wisdom here with a grain of salt. I do give him some credit for at least acknowledging the possibility that the gospel may be from God. So I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Well, I think it seems that for the rest of them, that hadn't even entered their mind. They were yeah. just thinking, just like those, yeah. these men need to be done away with because we don't want them to also lead the people astray that we're trying to instruct and teach. Right. And so Gamaliel enters in with this practical wisdom. But again, like you said, there's some flaws to it as well. There are some flaws, but um, along with it, there's at least a certain glimmer of humility. Mm. We might be wrong. It's possible. It's right? at least yeah. possible. They never thought of it that way. The Pharisees were so cocky and confident in their own righteousness. Mm. Um, they had simplistic rules about Jesus. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He's not from God. Mm. I don't care what he does to some man born blind. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter. I, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I don't have an explanation, but I'm just telling you. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He's not from God. Or they have these other simplistic things. We know where this man comes from. When the when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. <laughs> or or doesn't the scripture say that that the the Messiah will come out of Bethlehem? Uh, look into it, and you'll see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. Well, they were wrong on both counts. Yes, the Messiah came out of Bethlehem, and Jesus came from Bethlehem. Uh, furthermore. A prophet does arise, a light does shine out of Galilee. Read about it in Isaiah chapter 9. So they're just, they had these simplistic ways of eliminating Jesus. Mm. And so they thought, he's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Gamaliel is willing at least to admit, hey, we might be wrong. Maybe he is from God. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the contradictory nature of their response, right? The end of verse 39 says, so they took his advice. Mm -hmm. But then immediately in verse 40, we read, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and yeah. charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What explanation do you think they would have given for this response, even though it says they, they took the advice of Gamaliel? Well, at least we didn't kill them. <laughs> right, I mean, we could have done like worse. They're, they're, it's like a political answer, mm. like they're splitting the difference. Mm. I mean, we're not going to let them go. We got to do something. But it's the same thing that Pilate did. He said, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to have him flogged. And then I'm going to release him to let you know I find mm. no fault in him. It's like, well, then why flog him? <laughs> right. And again, if you might be fighting against God, God will not take it kindly if you beat his messengers. And if you look at uh, the parable of the vineyard and the absentee landowner, and he sends messengers to get his share of the crop at harvest time, the initial reaction is to beat the messengers. And Jesus covered this very thing. So this is very, uh, it's very twisted in their thinking. It's like, mm. oh, his speech persuaded them. Maybe they're from God. So I'll tell you what, instead of killing them, we'll just beat them, et cetera. And then they order them again, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus and let them go. Hmm. It's a powerful response, though, that the apostles have, because mm -hmm. even though they do endure this beating, mm -hmm. they leave rejoicing. What mm -hmm. enabled the apostles to joyfully endure this kind of suffering in verse 41? And what does verse 42 teach us about the apostolic ministry of evangelism? Yeah, they. Uh, it's just a great honor. It's a great honor to be beaten for the name of Jesus. Very few people are. The overwhelming majority of redeemed people in heaven will not have been physically beaten or martyred for the gospel. Mm. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad mm. because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before 
you. And so they're fulfilling Jesus' command. They are rejoicing and are glad that they are counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. And so we learn uh, just this this apostolic boldness. They are fearless. They're not afraid to be beaten, Mm -hmm. and they're not afraid to die. And and there's a certain mark of honor, as Paul will say in one of his epistles, let no man cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so there's that scourging. Paul was beaten eight times and stoned. So that's nine savage attacks on his body, at least for the gospel. Hmm. So we think about that. These men had won and they were rejoicing. It's powerful to think of them having their minds set mm-hmm. on things above as Christ had commanded them to be mindful of that reward that awaited if they would endure and be faithful with the gospel. Andy, any final thoughts for mm-hmm. us today as we conclude this episode and Acts chapter 5? Yeah, I'll just read the final verse. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. And so what that says to me is we need to be faithful. Uh, We have our own generation to reach. These apostles cannot reach 21st century America. That's our calling. Hmm. And so we need to be faithful day after day uh, in various settings. It says in the temple court, so that's for us it would be in the church, and then from house to house and in the marketplace, different places, that we would never stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And secondly, that we would not be afraid of what might happen to us, Mm. not be afraid of beatings, verbal beatings or physical beatings, not be afraid of any persecution. I believe or perceive that Christianity will become less and less popular in American culture generally. It's already happening. And so for us to be willing to stand up boldly and count the cost and be willing to proclaim the name of Jesus, that's the takeaway for me in Acts chapter 5. Well, this has been episode 12 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We would invite you to join us next time for episode 13 entitled The Seven Servants and Stephen, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.